Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Topical with Michael Schaefer. Another very special episode this week. This week, we are recording this episode in beautiful Perth City. The most isolated capital city in the world. And boy, does it feel like it when you fly into Perth. You look out the window and it is just desert, barren landscape for thousands and thousands of kilometers. And then finally, you start seeing a few big holes in the ground and you go, wow, we must be near Perth. I can see them digging up the cobalt and the copper and the tin and the uranium. It looks beautiful down there as you fly over. People say Australia is full. Racists always say Australia is full. Tell you what, those people have never flown to Perth because it's pretty empty down there. It's pretty empty down there. I I really feel like you could fit every immigrant and refugee, you could fit quite comfortably in regional WA if you wanted to, quite comfortably. I don't know why we're not just taking every refugee in the world and being like, mate, if you want to live here, you got to spend a couple of years down in the mines. I don't know why we're not doing that. I know that we often get British backpackers to pick fruit in order to extend their visas. I don't know why we're not just exploiting refugees who are desperate to be anywhere but their war-torn countries and just be like, yeah, you can come to Australia, but you're going to spend 16 hours a day underground. And I reckon most of them would be like, that's, to be honest, better than what I'm doing right now anyway, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I've spent the last three months in a tunnel somewhere underneath Gaza. I'll take a big hole in the ground near Geraldton. That's fine with me. As long as bombs aren't falling overhead, I'll take the mine. So WA is very, very empty. Perth is a very strange city because I think it is really essentially a country town that is masquerading as a city because they do have a central business district. They do have a CBD here and there are buildings, but there's no one really around. And it makes me think that they've just built the buildings so they can present this facade that they are a city, that they are a hub of business and tech and trade and investments. And I think that's just because they're kind of a little bit deep down ashamed that all of the money that's generated here, the entire economy, is based upon the mines out in Kalgoorlie and Geraldton and the Southwest. And they're a little bit embarrassed by that, I think. So I think they've built all these sky-rise buildings in order to pretend that it's not just that, in order to pretend that they're not just digging up minerals from the ground. They're actually, they're, they're doing deals. They're doing deals. They're doing legal work. They're doing accounting. They're creating technology. I think that's the facade that they want to give off 
But the reality is that all the buildings are empty and all the money is being made out in the country by blokes, by FIFO workers who are almost certainly going to be coughing up a lung in 10 years from now. I think that's the entire economy of WA. That's the entire economy of Perth. But they don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit it. So it's a country town pretending to be a city. And I don't respect it. I don't respect it. I think you have to just accept who you are and what you are. Like, you know, Melbourne, everyone from Melbourne is a is a bit of a wanker, is a bit of a coffee snob. Everyone from Melbourne is pretentious and we all think we're self-righteous. And we have just accepted that about ourselves. We aren't trying to be anything that we're not. We put a cafe, there's a cafe every eight meters in Melbourne because we want you to know that we care about coffee and we're cultured and we're sophisticated. And, you know, that's at least we're being honest about who we are. We're snobs, we're pretentious snobs, and we don't pretend to be anything else. In Sydney, they're all cunts. And it's refreshing that they don't pretend to be anything else. In Sydney, everyone's moving fast. Everyone's going to gym. Everyone's good looking. Everyone's trying to overtake you in the corporate ladder. They don't care about culture there. It's all about money. It's all about lifestyle. It's all about vanity. And that's why you have these beautiful structures like the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. It's all it's all meant to be representative of the vanity of the city, of how much all they care about is appearance. And I think that's nice. It's nice that they have just accepted that they're a bunch of cunts and they don't try to be anything else. That's their identity. That's who they are as a city. That's who they are as a people. You know, Melbourne and Sydney, of course, you can make fun of them, but they are, they're not pretending to be something else. Whereas you come to Perth, and this is a country town, but they're pretending to be a city. And I don't respect it. I don't respect it. I don't want to see skyscrapers. Perth should just be like just one pub, a bakery, and a pokey's den. And that's it. That's all you need here in Perth. You don't need a central business district because all the business is being done 5,000 kilometers away somewhere in Kalgoorlie. So I just want Perth to be honest about who it is. Don't try to pretend, don't try to, don't try to trick me into thinking that you're doing business deals in these buildings. I can see inside they're empty. There's nothing going on here. You just need a bakery, a pub and a pokey's den. That's all this city needs. That's all this city needs. Australia Day is coming up in two... If I'm recording this on the 24th of Jan, Australia Day is coming up in two days on the 26th of January. And I covered this on the podcast the other week. Woolworths decided to not sell Australia Day merch this year because they said, basically, it wasn't selling because it's tacky and it's shit and no one wants to buy thongs with the Australian flag on them. And of course, that kicked off, you know, just another round of the culture wars kicked off. Spoke about this on a previous podcast. I don't need to rehash all the stupidity that arose from that. 
But now this week, Woolworths has come out and said that they've been they've recorded a 50% increase in the amount of abuse that their staff are getting. Now, first of all, you know you're working in a pretty rough job when there are statistics about how much abuse people in your line of work are copping. You know, if you're a supermarket worker, you're a nurse, you're a teacher, these are professions where you are essentially on the front lines. You are essentially dealing with crazy, often crazy, insane, unhinged people, whether they're on drugs, if you're a nurse, or if they're stealing fruit, if you're in a supermarket, or if they are a a very wealthy parent who was upset that you gave their son a D uh, for their science experiment, which was just them bringing in a loaf of bread that was moldy and claiming that was their science experiment. So there are some professions like that where you are on the front lines, you actually are being confronted every day by unhinged psychopaths and narcissists. And if you are in one of those professions, the amount of abuse you cop gets recorded by people, by data analysts, I, susp- I suppose. You never see people being like, oh, there's been a 30% increase in accountants being punched in the head. You never see that statistic because accountants are typically not dealing with you know human beings day to day they're just dealing with the spreadsheets so there are some professions where this statistic gets counted in the supermarket staff have got to cop it almost as much as anyone really i know that doctors and nurses might disagree with that and maybe doctors and nurses do you know cop more abuse but also if you're a doctor or a nurse you do have the benefits of having access to class A narcotics. So if you are a doctor or a nurse and you're having a bad day because you know a meth head has slashed you across the face in the ER room, that's obviously a that's that's not easy to deal with, you know, in your line of work. But you can always just go, you know, hook yourself up to the morphine drip. So there are there are pros. Whereas if you're working in a supermarket and you're getting abused because the corporation that you work for isn't selling uh, aprons that say, uh, fuck off, we're full. There's not much, there's not much recourse for you, you know, to deal with that in the workplace. You kind of just have to cop it. There's no morphine drip. There's no, there's no oxycodone to, to rate. It's, you just have to cop the abuse and then go back into the, staff room and cry and put on a brave face and, and head head back out there into the madness. And I, I really do feel sorry for supermarket staff because it's been a rough few years for them. I mean, like we can't forget the to- the great toilet paper wars of 2020 when people thought they were going to be... People thought that the apocalypse had arrived. People thought that they were, going to, they were never going to be able to go shopping again. And so, of course, they just bought all the toilet paper they could. And Woolly staff were given the task, the very unpopular task of having to manage 
how much toilet paper each person could purchase. We basically said to 15-year-old children who were getting paid like $13 an hour, be like, hey, can you please deal with the paranoid schizophrenics who are coming in here and trying to buy all the toilet paper? So they've had a rough time of it. They had to deal with the paranoid schizophrenics during COVID. Before that, let's not forget the baby formula cues that we used to see at supermarkets. Do you remember you'd often see like Chinese people queuing up to buy baby formula? This was because in China, this was maybe five or so years ago, in China there was this huge scandal that the baby formula being manufactured in China was contaminated in some way. And as a result, Chinese people all of a sudden stopped trusting the baby formula that Xi Jinping was putting out on the streets. As a result of that, a lot of Chinese people in Australia were purchasing, were buying up all the baby formula here and presumably sending it back to their families back in China who couldn't trust the products that they were being served. As a result of that, again, you had these 14-year-old Jadens who had to somehow converse in broken English and broken Mandarin to a lot of very desperate Chinese people who you know, had nieces and nephews and babies back home in Shanghai who needed baby formula. And you had these 13-year-old children, again, being paid you know, minimum wage, having to explain to the Chinese community, oh, we can only give you like one thing of one tub of baby formula at a time because then we'll run out and we don't have any any baby formula for everyone else. So it's been a tough time. If you started working in a supermarket as a teenager like five years ago, that's the equivalent of like doing like three tours of Afghanistan at this point. I mean, the amount of trauma that you have encountered in those short years as a child, dealing with desperate Chinese people who need to feed their families, dealing with paranoid schizophrenics who need to wipe their bums. It's been a tough, it's been a, a very hard few years for them. And, and I just feel so sorry for the ones who are now, who would have thought, okay, well, you know, we've been through we've been through the tough times we've we went through the great baby formula shortage we went through the great toilet paper wars we've come out of that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger we've come out of that and then they turn on the tv and they see that patriots are are spray painting and and throwing graffiti and throwing bricks through Woolies stores because Woolies has decided not to sell Australia Day products that are made in China. So they now have to jump to work and cop all this abuse themselves. And it it just upsets me that whenever, you know, a CEO or a board makes a high level decision, they're always insulated from the consequences of that decision. Like, yes, like the CEO or a board member might have to go on TV and do an interview and explain the decision or, you know, have to answer some tough questions, but they're typically not the ones who are facing the the violence and threats and harassment that result because of their actions. What I would like to see going forward, and that this really could apply for all major corporations, I think it would be nice if CEOs and board members 
the day after they made a controversial decision about the direction that their company is taking, it would be nice if the day after they make they announced that decision that they then have to go down to the local store and deal with the clients and the customers directly rather than fobbing it off to the teenagers who are uh, ill-equipped and not being paid enough to deal with the madness of the unwashed masses who flow into these stores because they got riled up by Sky News the night before. I think it would be great if the CEO of Woolworths, who's currently doing a lot of interviews with the media to explain the decision process and how he basically has to go on TV and be like, no, we don't, we don't hate Australia. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing that the CEO has to be like, we don't hate Australia. We just love money. As if that wasn't obvious to all. But he has to come out and say, hey, we don't hate Australia. We just love money. He has to say that on TV. I, I think he should have to go down to the local Woolies, stand outside the front with a big sign that says, hi, I'm the CEO of Woolworths. Please direct all complaints and questions in my direction. Let him deal with the abuse. Let him take the punches because it's not fair that the, the children are on the front lines. It's not fair that the person whose job is to basically stand in the corner while you steal products from the self-serve checkouts and they look away because they don't want to have that confrontation. It's unfair to expect, expect them to deal with all this extra confrontation that comes from these patriots turning up and screaming at them for not being Australian and telling them to get out of their country. I think it should always be the CEO or the board member who has to turn up at the store, take the abuse, take the hits, and then I think we'll find that they probably make different decisions in the future. I mean, every time... I think that would be nice with banks because they're often you know, raising their interest rates and as a result, people with mortgages are fucked. As a result, people can't borrow money, you know, to, to buy a car or to start a business or whatever it is. I think whenever, like, whenever the NAB CEO announces an interest rate rise, I think he should have to go down to the local NAB branch and take the hits because it's not fair. It's just not fair that we're blaming low-level employees for the actions of this wealthy, insulated, rich elite. That's un-Australian. That's un-Australian. Whatever that means. Big news coming out of the UK and Europe over the last couple of days. So there was a soccer match in Italy and another soccer match in England over the past few days. And in both matches there were fans in the crowd hurling racial abuse at some of the players to the point where the teams actually like walked off the field and basically said, we're not returning until this is dealt with. We're not returning to the field until the culprits are ejected from the stadium. And I certainly support that. I think that's, I think that's a, 
it's 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 great that clubs and players, you know, can unite together in that way to combat racism quite directly. I really like that. As a result of that, though, FIFA, the governing body of football, has come out and said that they are going to potentially start banning or start forcing clubs to forfeit games if their fans are engaging in this racial abuse. Now, the problem I have with FIFA getting involved in this, the problem that I have with FIFA, you know, taking this big stance on racism and proposing what would be a a huge, could have a huge impact on a lot of leagues around Europe. The issue that I have with it is that they let Qatar host the World Cup. That's kind of what I find problematic about FIFA's stance on racism because they let Qatar host the World Cup. Now, Qatar is certainly homophobic, like literally homophobic because it's illegal to be gay in that country. And of course, it's also an incredibly racist country because it basically lives off and functions off the work of exploited Nepalese, Bangladeshi, Indians, just basically brown people get exploited and abused and turned into essentially slaves in order for that country to run. I mean, the only way that the that Qatar was able to host the World Cup and build the stadiums, as you might remember, was off the uh, literal blood of migrant workers, many of whom died in very, very unsafe conditions in the construction of all these stadiums. So FIFA endorsed a country like Qatar, a country that is plagued with homophobia and racism. They do that, and then now they come out and say, we got to stamp out racism from the league. And it's like, you you know, you could have... You could have helped stamp out racism and homophobia and other forms of bigotry uh, back in 2022. You could have done it then. All you had to do was not accept the oil money from the Qatar royal family or government, whoever fuck runs Qatar. All you had to do was not accept the blood money of the sheikhs. That's all you had to do. But they decided, no, we like money. We don't love racism, but we do like money. So here the money wins out. And that's fine. That's If you're a corporation and your whole thing is we're here to make money, that's so fine. You know, that's, that's what Woolworths is. And as a result, they're not selling Australia Day merch. That's fine. You're a company. You actually have fiduciary obligations to your shareholders to make sure the company is operating well, fine, fair enough. But you can't come out and say, we love money, and then also say, hey, racism is bad. Because those two things often conflict. I really hope they do find a way to deal with these racist fans. But unfortunately, I just don't think FIFA has the 
credibility or the moral authority to really step in and and assert itself. I do think there would be an interesting it would be interesting if this was implemented. It would be interesting to see how fans and clubs would react if they did make a new rule in soccer that you forfeit the match if your fans engage in racist behavior. I actually do think it would work because like racists they love racism. However, they also tend to love their their club. And I think that they love their clubs a little bit more than they love being racist. Maybe I'm giving racists a bit too much credit there, but God, racists love, they really, really love their sporting clubs. I think it's because if you're racist, there's a good chance you're a very unfulfilled person. I think that, you know, racists are very, they've got a void in their life. They feel aggrieved. And that's what causes them to find a group of people or a race to blame for the problems in their lives. So races, I think, are, are typically quite unfulfilled. They're, they're typically, they've got a void in their lives that gets filled with hatred. But one way in which they also try to fill that void is not just with hatred of brown people, but it's also with love of their geographically proximate football club that they just accidentally were born near. And let's not forget that racism and love for your football club are essentially the same part of your brain because racism is just this belief that because I was born in this country and I was born in this skin that I'm, I belong to like a, a group. I belong to, you know, this particular nation, this particular country, this is, and everyone else is an enemy. It's an us versus them. Like that's, that it's that that part of the brain is also what makes you love your your sporting club because you go oh well I happen to be born in this suburb or in this city and the football club that represents this suburb or this city is Liverpool or Manchester or Sheffield whatever it happens to be Collingwood Carlton whatever it happens to be you go well I was born this thing so this now becomes my group and I hate everyone else, us versus them. Like sporting rivalries are, are really just racism, but based upon kind of suburban geography rather than ethnicity, really. So my point is that it is the same part of the brain, I think, that makes you racist, that also makes you love your football club. And that's why I think there is such a huge overlap between people who love their football clubs and people who are also racist. So essentially what I'm saying here is that if you say to these racists, hey, you have to choose between your football club winning this match or making monkey noises at the uh, goalkeeper from Nigeria, I think a good chunk of them are going to be like, hmm, you've put us in a real moral dilemma here. This is a real conundrum. Because I do think that black people are worse than me. But I also would like to see my club 
play in the Champions League next year. So, fine. I will hold back on the monkey noises. I don't endorse that way of thinking, but I actually do think it could be effective. My only concern with implementing this rule, my only concern is that I think it could be exploited by people who would who want to see their clubs win by getting the other club to default. So, because what you could do, if you're aware of this rule, what you could do, I'm not encouraging people to do this. I'm just saying this is a problem that sporting leagues would have to deal with if this rule were implemented. What you could do is, like, I'm a Sydney Swan supporter, for example, okay? Now, I, for example, hate the Collingwood Football Club, okay? Now, if when Sydney played Collingwood, in the Australian Football League, if I really hated Collingwood so much, and I, and I thought, and I was worried that they were going to win without my intervention, what I could do is, I could go to the match with my Collingwood jumper on instead of a Sydney Swans jumper. I could pretend to be a Collingwood supporter. Is what I'm trying to say. I could go to the MCG, and I could be wearing my black and white stripes. I could uh, bring a pack of cigarettes with me and chain smoke throughout the match. I could uh, bring a young child with me and give them uh, alcohol. And I could dislodge a few of my teeth from my jaw. And that way, when I entered the stadium, people would have no doubt that I am a bona fide Collingwood fan and certainly a, a lifelong member of the club. And what I could then do is I could start racially abusing the players for the Sydney Swans. I could start doing that. I wouldn't want to do that. Like that would hurt my soul. But it could be for the greater good because what could happen is the Sydney Swans players could report me, could point me out in the club and go, hey, there's a Collingwood fan over here hurling racial abuse at our players. And let's be honest, no one would be shocked by that happening. No one would be shocked to read the headline, Collingwood fan engages in racial abuse. I mean, to be honest, it would be shocking to read a headline saying Collingwood fan participates in the acknowledgement of country ceremony before the match. Like that would be more shocking than Collingwood fan engages in racial abuse. So what I could do is I could, you know, dress the part, turn up to the stadium, you know, drop a few slurs, throw a few bananas, as is their want, as is what racists like to do. And lo and behold, I get ejected, but Collingwood forfeits the match and Sydney wins the game. So... What I'm trying to say is here is that if I were a, a genuine Sydney Swans fan, that's what I would do. So that's my concern is that how are you going to distinguish between the racists who, who are just normal Collingwood fans and the majority of Collingwood fans, presumably, and the racists who are pretending to be Collingwood fans in order to get the club to lose the match. Something that FIFA is going to have to deal with 
if they bring in this new rule. The ABC has been back in the news this week. It's always bad when you're a news organization and you become the news. That's kind of the cardinal sin of journalism, isn't it? Look, I've been reluctant to talk about this story because it is, of course, connected to the Israel-Hamas war. And I have kind of vowed to only really talk about that if I had something new to say, if there was some kind of like, if there were some hot takes, some new developments to be discussed. And I think that this story justifies a comment because it is an interesting story about the role of journalists and the role of Australia's public broadcaster and its obsession with trying to appease uh, conservatives and, and right-wing groups. So if you're not up to date, this is basically the story in a nutshell. A journalist by the name of Antoinette Latouf, who I don't know how relevant this is to the story, but I'll mention this is what they're all saying. It's She's Lebanese. Now, does that matter to the story? Maybe a little bit, but I'm just giving you that for context only because that has been in all the reporting as well. So people presume that's that's relevant to understanding what's happened here. I hate throwing in someone's racial or ethnic or national background, by the way, because almost always is not relevant. Like, do you know when like, you know, you're, at, you're chatting with your uncle at like Christmas lunch or something and he's like, oh, I just... Oh, I had a, my Uber driver over here was this Indian bloke and then he starts telling you a story and it's like, I don't know if him being Indian was at all relevant to the fact that, you know, he was complaining about his divorce. But anyway, Antoinette Latouf is uh, Lebanese and so there is a presumption that because of that, she might be biased towards the Palestinian uh, side. There is that there is that uh, people think she might be biased. Not that there's any reason to think that, but people think that. As a result of her being a journalist and her having to be Lebanese, she has kind of attracted the ire of some Jewish lobbyists, some Jewish groups. Now, she was engaged by the ABC to host the radio show just a radio show for them in sydney for a week she had a five-day very short contract to host the a radio program for them and i think on you know during that period or just before she started that contract she just shared on her instagram story a a post by the human rights watch organization which is a very reputable organization and is in fact an organization that the abc refers to in its own reporting when it comes to the war in Gaza. So she just shared on her story, on her stories on Instagram, a headline from the HRW saying that um, Israel was using starvation as, you know, a weapon of of war, basically, um, in its war against Hamas. Now, a lot of Jewish people saw her share that and decided, well, this is our chance to you know, get this woman taken off air. And so some of them had, uh, you know, some of these, I think it was a bunch of like 
Jewish lawyers and Jewish professionals who had connections with the ABC and basically, you know, sent some letters and, you know, made some kind of threats to the ABC that if they didn't cancel her very short five-day contract, that they might instigate legal proceedings against the ABC and make this a big story. Now, the ABC, because they're a bunch of, of cowards, um, caved into these threats and, you know, decided to cancel this five-day contract three days in. Now, of course, this then all gets reported, all these messages that some of the Jewish lobbyists sent to ABC administrators get re- get leaked into the public. And now, now everyone understands that the ABC made its decision to sack Antoinette Latouf in part uh, because of this these threats or comments made by this Jewish lobbyist group. Now, as a Jewish person, this upset, upsets the shit out of me. It really does. Because there is so much anti-Semitism out there. There are so many conspiracy theories about how Jews run the world and Jews control the media. And when this type of shit happens, it only makes it so much worse. I hate it when Jewish people fuck up so badly that they make anti-Semitism worse. It's somewhat reminiscent of when Kanye West got cancelled. You know, he came out and made all these comments about how, you know, there's the Jewish media and it controls Hollywood and it controls the world and and they're controlling him. And, and after making those comments, he literally lost his Adidas contract. He lost his sponsorships. Like, no one's going to touch him. He lost his management. He lost everything. And as much as it's important for anti-Semites like Kanye West to face consequences, particularly when they go out on podcasts and say that they love Hitler, which is a big comment to make because um, I don't think Hitler would have loved Kanye in return. I doubt it would have been mutual. As much as it's important to hold anti-Semites to account, the problem is that when you do, you just perpetuate the very conspiracy that they themselves are creating, which is that, you know, the Jews have all the power and the Jews run the world. So if you're a Jewish person, you're a Jewish group, you just have to be very careful about, you know, when and where you exercise your influence, okay? I think Kanye was a good example of exercising that influence because he's got a huge platform. He was literally saying the most anti-Semitic shit you could imagine. (coughs) He was literally saying some anti-Semitic crazy shit. So yeah, in that instance, you have to go ahead and and find a way to, you know, uh, de-platform him in some way. Particularly when you can take into account his of his medication and he's clearly not in his right frame of mind. Maybe in that circumstance, okay, that's that is a, a reasonable and legitimate exercise of power. But in this case of Antoinette Latouf being sacked, it's just it's clearly, it's overreach doesn't justify what it is. It's, it's just appalling to me. It really is deeply upsetting to me because she hasn't made any anti-Semitic comments. She's literally just sharing an article from a, a credible organization, the Human Rights Watch, an organization the ABC itself has relied upon, 
in its own reporting of the war. And as a result of that, she has lost this contract because some Jewish people think that she herself is anti-Semitic or, you know, she must be biased because her family's Lebanese. It just... It's like, Jews, you have to... You have to exercise this power at the right time and the right place. And when you, Because when you fuck it up like this, not only do you uh, very unjustly impact the, the career of a very good journalist, not only do you do that, you also kind of create this chilling... It creates this chilling effect for other journalists because now everyone's scared of saying anything, because whether it's, you know, in support of Israel or in support of Palestine because... They're worried that all of a sudden there's going to be some sort of lobby group contacting their employer and making legal threats. And then on top of that, all of that, you are perpetuating the very anti-Semitic trope, the very anti-Semitic stereotype that you're trying to combat, which is that, you know, Jews run the world and Jews control the media. So I guess my point is to any Jewish lobbyists, who might seek to exercise control or influence over the media in the coming weeks, months, years, whatever it is. If you're going to do it, A, pick your battles. Maybe go after the Kanye's of the world rather than the Antoinette Latouf's of the world. And B, uh, don't get caught. I think that's really the big thing for me. Just don't get caught. I mean, whatever happened... To Jews, you know, whatever happened to the global Jewish cabal that operated in the shadows? Can we go back to operating in the shadows? Can we keep it under wraps, guys? Please. Can we go back to operating in the shadows instead of operating in WhatsApp groups that are getting screenshotted and leaked to the very media that we apparently control? I mean, for fuck's sake, Jews, we're meant to be good at this. We're meant to be good at this. If you're going to control the media, don't get caught. That is my message. The one last thing I just have to say about this is the the cowardice of the of the ABC. Now, and I, I know this from speaking to numerous people who have worked at the ABC is that the ABC is like terrified of being categorized and being pigeonholed as, you know, left-wing progressives who hate, you know, the Liberal Party and hate Sky News and hate, you know, the conservatives, etc. They're terrified of that type of criticism. They're terrified of being pigeonholed as a left-leaning institution. And as a result of that, they are they try to overcorrect. As a result of that criticism, they try to overcorrect and then they do something stupid like sacking a journalist for sharing a story that could be perceived as a left-leaning slant on the conflict. So the ABC as well really needs to be held accountable for their own cowardice because this is actually like a prime example of cancel culture. This is a prime example of 
a minority, a, a small vocal group, uh, you know, try exercising influence and power in order to, you know, get someone sacked, essentially. That's, that is what cancel culture is. It's a, it's a small vocal minority uh, impacting the lives and careers of individuals who they disagree with. But cancel culture only works, it's only successful if there are enough cowards that allow it to work. So if the ABC had a bit of integrity and if the ABC was willing to just stand by its fucking staff that it employs, then this would never have been a story. And this and I and we they wouldn't even be in the news. If they had some gumption, they would have said to this these threats, no, she is permitted to share a story from the Human Rights Watch because we report on those stories anyway. But because they're so concerned and so hypersensitive at, at being labelled as left-wing, you know, biased, uh, you know, progressive, greeny, latte-sipping, you know, uh, blue-haired fuckwits, because they're so concerned about being labelled in that way, they overcorrect and they cave in to what is a very, very clear example of cancel culture. So I wish Antoinette Latouf all the best in her, uh, I think she's currently in court now, taking the episode of court for unfair dismissal or whatever it is. I wish her all the best. And I really do hope that uh, she gets damages and that the ABC is, is mocked and ridiculed and made an example of by the court for gross incompetence and cowardice. That's what I hope. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Uh, If you enjoyed this one, please feel free to give it a a nice review on Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen. Also, if you're angry with the ABC, please don't go to the ABC buildings and start harassing the low-level employees at the ABC like those fuckwits are harassing the woolly staff. No, 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 no. Uh, Go to the board members, the managing director of the ABC, find where they live. Don't hurt them. Don't. I have to say that, otherwise I'll be in jail. But, you know, they should be the ones that experience the brunt of their stupidity, not the low-level employees and janitors and security staff who are not getting paid enough to deal with your abuse. I've got shows in Perth at the Fringe World Festival over the 13th to the 18th of February. I'll also be in Fremantle on the 16th to the 18th of February doing my new show, Lots to Say, plus tickets for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival are also on sale. I'll be there the whole month, 28th of March through to the 21st of April. Head to my website, michaelshafer.com for tickets. Have a great week. I'll see you next week. Good night.